0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So there have been uh, many historical firsts in the world, obviously. I want to talk uh, through a few of them with you, and maybe you can help me uh, fill in some blanks here. So a little quiz quiz time, quiz time. We'll see who knows their quiz stuff, all right? Uh, historical firsts, okay? First, uh, start with a softball. First president of the United States? Well, I'm really concerned about our public school system. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. George Washington. <laughs> that was the easy one, guys. It gets, well, the next one's pretty easy, too. 1969, July of 69, the first man on the moon was? You got it. You know that really well. You've been listening to podcasts and watching movies and it's awesome. Uh, So now we will get a little more more difficult. 1932, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean was? Nailed it. Ladies, you knew that one really good. That was loud, right? Um, Here's another one. This is longer ago. 1519, Ferdinand Magellan was the first person to do what? Nailed it! Circumnavigate the globe, Magellan, 1519. Got it. She was there. Were you on board the expedition? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Exactly. Um, For any sports fans, 1920 um, was the first time there was ever 50 home runs hit in one season by Babe Ruth. Ruth. You got it. Hank Aaron's a good guess, but Babe Ruth. Yeah, you got it. Here's the hardest one. Okay. And so I'll say it this way: What in what year was the first email sent? In what year? Anybody want to guess? 82? Close. 78? Close. 71. 71. Julie got it. 1971. <laughs> you were that she was there. So a man named Ray Tomlinson sent the first electronic message between two computers. So that's considered the first email 1971. I cannot believe that, but apparently it's true. I saw it on the internet, so I'm sure it's true. Don't check my math on that, okay? Just trust me, all right? So last week, we started looking at a man named Stephen, and we looked at him in detail, and we'll look at him again today. And the reason I mentioned famous first is because Stephen is the first of something. He is the first recorded Christian martyr. He's the first person in recorded history, the first Christian, to give his life uh, for his faith, for Jesus. And so we're going to continue looking at him today, and we'll examine what I'm going to call four markers of a martyr. Today we'll look at the life of Stephen and the death of Stephen and look at four markers of a martyr. And we're looking at this in general with these four things because Stephen is the first Christian martyr, but he's certainly not the last. We'll look even next week at sort of a turning point in the life of the church where we we mentioned last week, at first the persecution started with imprisonment and threats to just Peter and John. And then it turned into all the apostles are imprisoned and threatened. And now it's turned into trickling down to Stephen, who's kind of a step down in the leadership scale. And he's actually, as we'll see, going to give his life ultimately for his faith. And then next week, we'll see the persecution after this moment just spread like crazy. And it trickled all the way down to anyone who is a Christian is under threat, is under attack, is on the run. But it really propels the mission of the church. But that's next week. Today we'll look at four markers of a martyr from the life of Stephen. And as we go down them, we will see it's going to spell out a word. We're going to get really fancy today. We're going to see that, that martyrs are pros. They are pros at being martyrs. So that's our four-point kind of step progression today. Four markers of a martyr, P-R-O-N. S And so not only did Stephen possess these four qualities that we'll look at, but every martyr after him possessed these qualities, and we'll see as we go along how we can apply these same markers to our lives as well. So let's jump in. Uh, the first marker of a martyr that we'll see in Acts chapter 7 is proclamation of truth. That's where the journey starts. That's where the trouble begins. The first marker of a martyr is the proclamation of truth. We'll be in Acts chapter 7. Some of you I even heard read it this week. We, I challenged you to read through Acts 7. We'll read quite a bit of it today, but kind of scattered around. So now you'll have the full flow, the full context as if, if you've read it this week. We'll start at the very beginning, Acts chapter 7 verse 1. Then the high priest asks Stephen, are these accusations true? Now we have to go back to Acts chapter 6 for a second to see what the charges against him were to catch up. So let's go back to Acts 6, verse 10. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. So there's part of that threat. Uh, against him this roused the people the elders the teachers of religious law so they arrested stephen and brought him before the high council the lying witnesses said this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of moses we have heard him say that this jesus of nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs moses handed down to us and so then they ask him are these charges true stephen is on trial for his life and what it seems that he's been given is a chance to present his defense. He gets to represent himself as his own attorney. He gets to try to declare his innocence. But what Stephen does is interesting. Is He doesn't try to defend his innocence by refuting the lies against him. He just starts telling a story. That's his defense. It's not really self-defense. It's a proclamation of truth. He proves his innocence by going directly to their scriptures, to the Hebrew scriptures, the stories that they know forwards and backwards just like he does, but he's trying, as we'll see, to prove a larger point by telling them these stories. He goes with the ultimate standard of truth by telling not his story, but God's story. But there's a problematic theme with where Stephen's going to go that we will see, that we know all too well in our culture. The problematic theme with proclaiming truth is that many, if not most people, reject that truth that we proclaim. You can see around us the culture that's fracturing, cracking, decaying, falling to pieces, confusion everywhere, deception everywhere. Most people reject the truth that we hopefully try to proclaim. And Stephen gives a few examples that we'll look through here in Acts 7 um, to see this idea. I will say, before we get really into it, the first two points we'll spend most of our time on. The last two will be quicker, and we'll kind of put a bow on it. Uh, So we'll be in this for a few minutes here as he proclaims the truth of God's word. So let's start with the story of Joseph. He goes through a few uh, of the major characters of the Hebrew scriptures, but Joseph is where we start here in Acts 7 verse 9. He starts out the story this way, these patriarchs, so the, grand, the grandchildren of Abraham, right? They were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. So Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson, you know, three generations later. He has 11 older brothers, and Joseph has these strange dreams, and he just, you know, over cereal and milk, I guess, in the morning, tells his brothers around the table, Hey, I've had these dreams, guys. I wanted to share them with you because I don't know what they mean. And he tells them, in these dreams, you and mom and dad bow down and worship me. Now, as you can probably assume, the brothers aren't going to like that dream too well. They're not going to want to know anything more about that. Like, who do you think you are? You're the little runt kid brother. Get out of here. And so instead of just saying, get out of here, they literally sell him into slavery and he finds himself in Egypt as a slave. Out of anger and jealousy, they reject the truth that Joseph's trying to figure out and sell their brother into slavery. Now again, Joseph didn't probably quite know what the dreams meant. He sort of, as we see in his story, has a gift for interpreting dreams, even though he can't quite interpret his own yet. He's got to live it out over the course of 20 years. Uh, But looking back, Stephen knows, we know, everyone knows that the the truth was in that dream. His dream was reality, even if he didn't know what it was, but his truth was rejected. And for that 20-year period, slavery, and then imprisoned falsely for crimes he did not commit, he is rejected again and again and again. It seems he's been forgotten over and over and over. But over the course of events in his life, he finally, uh, as Stephen will say later on, he becomes powerful in in the country of Egypt. He becomes second in command over everything. So then his brothers... There's a famine at this point. The brothers come to Egypt for grain because they've stored up their grain because Joseph used the wisdom of God through dreams uh, to know what to do during this time that was coming. His brothers come, and here's how Stephen describes that visit, Acts 7.13. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. So his brothers had rejected him, had rejected truth 20 years before, but finally the truth they rejected, they then lived out. They saw it happen. They actually bowed down to this leader of Egypt they didn't know was their brother at the time, but the second time they came back, he reveals who he is to them, and then everything makes sense. But for 20 years, they had rejected that truth. So what I think Stephen is trying to tell us here is that truth is truth, even if we don't believe it. Truth is not relative to our belief. It just is. And here's the other part of that. As we proclaim truth in our culture, truth is truth, catch this, even if you're the only one who believes it. So as you proclaim it, others don't believe it. It doesn't mean it's not truth anymore. Even if you're the only one, our job, a marker that we, I think we can hang on to from Stephen here is to still proclaim that truth. Our job is not to convince people, to twist their arm, to make them, you need, you have to believe this. You know, now we want to convince them. We want to try to tell them, hey, you need the truth of the gospel. But it's truth whether or not they believe it. It's truth even whether or not I believe it. It just is. So we're to proclaim it anyway. He then moves on to Moses. We'll come back to Joseph and these stories again in a different lens here in a few moments. But then he goes on to Moses, again, whom he's accused of blaspheming against, right? He's he's speaking against Moses. He's trying to rip apart the law. He's trying to get rid of all of our customs. And so instead of saying, no, I'm not, he tells them about moses what they already know he's saying "No, i believe in the traditions of moses i believe in the law i'm not trying to throw him out so he uses moses here as another example of proclaiming truth we'll move down to Acts 7 23 and it says this one day when moses was 40 years old he decided to visit his relatives the people of israel he saw an egyptian mistreating an israelite so moses came to the man's defense and avenged him killing the egyptian Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. So this happened when Moses was, again, 40 years old. This event happened. And then he had to wait in hiding in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 more years before God ever did anything really with his life that we remember. 40 years before the people believed him and he delivered them. So what we see here again from Stephen is this idea that you can't force truth on someone. We simply proclaim it and let God do what he's going to do. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago then as well. as we, God does use Moses to deliver his people. Right? We, we, but we looked at when they are in the wilderness, they then grumble, complain against Moses. And the way that Stephen words this is interesting. He sees it as a rejection of moses and really of god as well because moses has led them out across the red sea he's up on the mountain getting the law of god literally in stone tablets and he's been up there too long the people are you, you would say maybe they're concerned but really they're just antsy you know we're like let's get a move on moses is gone he's not coming back let's get another new leader like they are rejecting him is what what stephen says here let's look at it Acts 7:39. He says, but our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us. For we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. Stephen says, our ancestors did this, and you are now doing the same thing. He's saying this is what one, every human heart does this. Every human heart rejects truth at some point. This is the essence of what sin is. It's a rejection of God's way in exchange for mine. And that's the other part of this. Is it's not just that people reject truth. It's that then they replace it with a different version of their own truth. Our culture is obsessed with the idea of speaking your truth, speaking my truth. That's what I would call an opinion. Okay? If there's a, if there's a qualifier in front of truth, then you've changed what that thing is. And so our culture's obsessed with my truth, your truth, our truth. How about God's truth? How about what's been true always and forever and will always be true? Let's go from there as a baseline, and then we maybe can build our lives on a better foundation than just my opinion or my feelings or my perspective. Because our culture is obsessed with, I don't like what God seems to say, so I'm going to throw him out. But not just throw him out, but it, that vacuum gets replaced with something. It's my opinion, my viewpoint, my preferences, right? Whatever I think is right, I replace really God with me when I reject Him. I don't like what the Bible says. Our culture would say, "Oh, it's outdated. It's old. It's antiquated. You know, it's we don't need that. You know, oppressive kind of way and those rules and regulations." So people reject it, but then they still replace it with something. They live their life by some sort of God, and if they don't base it on God or the Bible, they, re- they replace it with themselves and their own opinions. This is what Stephen was up against, and nothing has changed, has it? This is still <laughs> where we find ourselves to this day. But then he tells these stories as he proclaims truth, and then he, he's, he ends it with this. Near the end of his speech at verse 51, he brings it to his current day. It wasn't just the ancestors of old. He says, you stubborn people. This is Stephen talking to the leaders here. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. This is what, as we go back in the story, this is what Joseph faced. This is what Moses faced. This is what all the prophets faced. This is what Jesus faced. This is what Stephen now is facing, and it is still where we are. An ultimate rejection of truth by the broader culture. And some people are, are sincerely so lost and deceived and blind and deaf and dumb to what's going on around them. They really do not have any sense of direction at all. Like there is such a deception in the world. The scripture talks about Satan is the God, little g God of this age. Okay, He has great influence and great power right now in this broken, fallen world that we live in. Some people are so deceived they don't know anything. Some people that you know have never maybe been into a church, maybe they've never owned a Bible, read a Bible, so they have nothing to base anything off of but their own worldview. But many, even as Stephen says, probably have an inkling of what the truth is. They just don't like it. Like sometimes we, I know it's the right thing to do, but I don't want to, so I'm not going. To. Like Most people, I think, fall into that category. They have enough of an idea of what the truth is, yet they reject it and replace it, and we get where we are in our culture. But again, the maker of the martyr here is just simply to proclaim the truth and leave the results to God. So that's the first thing we see here from Stephen, is this proclamation of the truth. The second marker of Stephen and the second marker of a martyr is then the R, remembrance of God's faithfulness. That's why we sang the songs that we sang today, because we're remembering God's faithfulness even through song this morning. As we've already seen and we'll continue to see for a few minutes here, Stephen's entire speech is pretty much a summary of the Old Testament of the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, he starts all the way, we'll get to Abraham here in a second. He starts all the way at the very beginning of the Jewish race, all the way to their current day. Like he just gives the highlight reel of the entire Old Testament. It's pretty amazing that he's able to do this in the uh, situation where he finds himself. He's able to recall. That's why we'll get to the, I don't wanna really get ahead of myself to the S because we'll get to that. It's important. Um, but there's a reason why he's able to just go and flow and do this thing the way he is. But story after story that Stephen tells is filled with God's faithfulness person after person that he talks about was someone to whom God was faithful. And Stephen starts at the very beginning, once again, of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And so this is back up to the very top. Acts 7, verse 2 is how he starts with Abraham. And it says this, This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans, that's ancient Babylon, and lived in Haran until his father died. Then, here's the key, verse four, then God brought him here to the land where you now live. Stephen starts all the way at the beginning of Abraham and says, do you know how faithful our God is? He's so faithful that 2,000 years ago in stephen's mind so four thousand years ago now but in stephen's day two thousand years ago god made a promise to one man and it's fulfilled even now that's how faithful god is he doesn't work on a timeline there's no like oh the deadline's coming i gotta get this done it's like no god kept his promise he kept his word he was faithful he's saying we are still the people that god promised two thousand years ago it's you and me We're living in the land that God promised to Abraham 2,000 years ago. You're in it. You're standing in it, living in it right now. God is so faithful is what Stephen's trying to communicate here in this speech. So what Stephen is telling us is I think what we also need to hear. Don't forget God's faithfulness. Don't forget it. Then we'll go back to Joseph. God was faithful to Joseph, too, even in the worst of circumstances, as we'll see, down to Acts 7, verse 9. Again, we're reading quite a bit today, but uh, he says it better than I could, so let's just let him speak for himself, all right? Acts 7, verse 9. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt, but... God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. It is easy to see here that the story of Joseph is the story of God's faithfulness. Now, you could look at the story of Joseph and read about him and say, well, wait, no, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused of raping his boss's wife in their home. He was forgotten about in prison for over a dozen years. Like, how is God faithful in that? Well, Stephen sees right away that 20-year period was God's faithfulness to, to Joseph over and over and over again. He never forgot about him, and in his moment of greatest need, he always came through. And I think Stephen is telling this story, but he's also maybe in his own mind trying to psych himself out a little bit. Okay, I'm in a bad spot, but God was faithful. He'll be faithful. Man, this does not look good, but remember Joseph? He's probably preaching to himself a little bit here, like I do sometimes, okay? Uh, Like, okay, God was faithful. God was faithful. I need him to be faithful right now. So in some ways, it's going both ways here. Joseph was in a trial. Stephen was in a trial, but the same message applies. Don't forget God's faithfulness. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is faithful. Even when you can't see it, God is faithful. Even when the blinders are on and you can't tell which way is what and what God's going to do and how is he going to come through, don't forget God's faithfulness. Then we get to Moses, back to Moses here. Uh, We'll see a couple instances of his faithfulness here to Moses and then tie it into his day and our day as well. Acts 7 verse 20 At the time that Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes, his parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, we'll talk about that, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. So you probably know that Moses was born in a very interesting time where the Hebrews are slaves in Egypt and the Pharaoh is counting the heads. You know, he's counting. He's like, it's great that we have, you know, maybe a million strong men here to do labor for me. That's awesome. But if they start to outnumber us, we're going to be in trouble if they decide that they want to you know do an uprising they have enough of them that i'm getting a little concerned and so to kind of curb that off pharaoh makes this command around the time of moses's birth any hebrew boy that's born kill them and herod does the same thing when jesus is born about 1500 years later and now our leadership likes to do the same thing okay see where i'm going with that you see that was subtle but it's the same idea Uh, anyway but god was faithful to moses how in this was he faithful well moses lived Through a genocide of babies, he survived. And then not only did he survive the Pharaoh, he actually lived in Pharaoh's palace for the first many years of his life. So God was very faithful to him. But then after he's rejected and flees to the wilderness, we mentioned that earlier, he's there for 40 years as a shepherd, just wandering around with dirty, nasty, smelly sheep. No one knows who he is. He was like top cream of the crop in Egypt not that long ago, but now he's out in the middle of nowhere doing who knows what. But then God showed himself faithful even at maybe that low point for Moses. And it's one of the most amazing things in Scripture, and Stephen talks about it, Acts 7, verse 30, 40 years later. So Moses is now 80 years old, okay? Okay? Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. I think we see two parts of God's faithfulness here in this account. God was both faithful to Moses and then faithful through Moses. Okay, Because he's faithful to Moses, because again, for 40 years, the prime of his life, or so he thought, uh, he's just wandering around with sheep. I mean, he's got a wife and a family and life's okay, but man, Egypt was kind of nice and I had everything I wanted. I had servants and I was going to be somebody. I could make a difference. And here I am wandering around. But God reminded him, I have not forgotten you. And you're wandering and you're waiting. I've not forgotten you. I see you. You're right there, Moses. I know everything about you. God was faithful to Moses. And then he said, not only do I see you, but I've got a plan for you and you're not ready for it, you're not prepared for it, but I'm going to use you greater than you ever thought you could be. You're starting to second-guess yourself, you're starting to worry and fear and fret and be like, I don't know if I can make anything of myself, and God's saying, I see you. He was faithful to Moses, and then through that plan, he was faithful through Moses. I love the last part of that verse. God says, I have heard the groans of my people, and I've come down to rescue them, but now I'm sending you. I love how God's like, yeah, I've come down, but I'm going to use you. Could God have released his people without Moses' help? Yeah, he sure could have, but he never does that. God uses the people that are here to do his work. That includes you and that includes me. God sees you. He's faithful to you. He will give you whatever you need for the task he's called you to do. You may not feel equipped or qualified. That's usually a good sign that God's going to use you for something. It's probably the people, yeah, I can do that. He's like, ah, I'm going to use somebody else. Like, I've I've made that mistake before. You know, King Saul was kind of that way. I'm big. I'm strong. I'm smart. I'm the first. I'm the best. And and it ended terribly for him. So God's like, no, 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 no. I I got somebody after my own heart I'm going to use instead. So we, we feel unqualified, disqualified, but God is faithful to us anyway. He remained faithful to his people. And we see how God used Moses um, to to free his people, Acts 7, 36. We know this, but let's look at it for just a second. By means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. And then he goes on to list, you know, he freed them from Egyptian bondage. Then he talks about Joshua leading the people into the promised land, talks about King David, King Solomon leading the people through that phase. God remained faithful, Stephen says here. Generation after generation after generation, God was faithful. And I think the coolest part about this is as you read the Old Testament, even the parts that he doesn't mention, if you know anything about the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you know that God remained faithful to his people even when they were faithless toward him. That's how good God is. That's how faithful he is to his people. He remained faithful to them generation after generation, even though they rejected him, as Stephen says. Your ancestors rejected him over and over and over, but God remained faithful then one more thing and we'll move on the capstone i think of what stephen's trying to communicate here in god's faithfulness is in verse 37 moses himself told the people of israel god will raise up for you a prophet capital p like me from among your own people the core of the message of stephen is jesus He's telling the people, the council that are threatening him with his life on the line, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. That's why Peter and John are preaching in Jesus' name. That's why I'm preaching in Jesus' name. That's why we have the power that we do, because Jesus is not a different thing. No, 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 it's the whole thing. It's the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. He says, even Moses said it's going to happen. He'll send a prophet like me to you. The prophets over and over talked about God's faithfulness to someone who would come. Their ancestors waited for hundreds of years for the promise to be fulfilled, and it came through Jesus. Stephen is saying, again, what we need to be reminded of, don't forget God's faithfulness. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. Remember in your life how good God has been to you. Remember when God has come through for you. Remember his faithfulness through his word. Sometimes that's, that's all we've got. So when we talk about, yes, you should read your Bible, it's not just because you need something else to do. It's not because you have too much time on your hands. Hey, here's a 2,000-page book to read. It's really hard to understand, but just do it just because. No, no, no. The reason is because it reminds us of God's faithfulness over and over. When I can't see it in my life, I can see it in Scripture. When I'm going through something and maybe I read something, that man, that sounds like me. I'm now encouraged to remember God's faithfulness through his word for what's ahead. Don't forget God's faithfulness. It's a marker of a martyr. And the third thing, these last two again, we'll, we'll finish up more, more quickly than the, the first two. The third, the third marker of a martyr is Stephen had an obedient attitude. As we've already seen the last couple weeks, he's in an extremely difficult situation here. He's in an impossible position here. He's been blindsided by this attack. Uh, He's had false witnesses hired by the people in authority to undercut him with bogus charges. He is cornered and outnumbered and on, on threat for his life. And yet he proclaims truth and faithfulness of God. And after he does that, you would think, okay, great. You know, they repent of their sins. They see the error of their ways. They say, oh, yes, forgive us. We believe in Jesus. Look at verse 54. Here's the response he got, okay? The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. Probably not the response he was hoping for, you know? Probably not the reception he had thought in his mind. Okay, I've got this amazing, elaborate speech of God's faithfulness, and I'm proclaiming truth, and I know that God's with me, His Spirit's with me, and so this is going to be great. This is going to go great, and yet it doesn't go so great. And then it gets worse right? Skip down to verse 57, the end of the passage here. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, la, 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 la. you know, that literally did that, okay? They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin, and with that, he died. The reason that Stephen is remembered here in in Acts 7 is because he had an obedient attitude. That's really the reason here, or one of the reasons. He didn't cave to the pressure that was in front of him. He didn't change or soften his message to appease the angry crowd. He didn't recant his beliefs when literally they're going to kill him. They're going to throw him off the temple, which probably is down, down a hill, not just out of the temple, but like it's on a mountain or it's on a mount there. So they threw him down a hill and then stoned him to death. He knows that's coming. He has to know this is probably not going to go great. Yet he didn't recant his belief. He said, whoa, 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 wait. Okay, guys, you know, I, was, you know, I was just kind of exaggerating a little bit. You know, It's Jesus. You can take him or leave. Eh, you know what? Let's just, let's just go back to how things, like he doesn't do that. He has an obedient attitude. But also on the flip side of that, here's also what he doesn't do. He also did not lash out in anger at his enemies. He didn't make it personal, as we looked at last week. He took it personal as far as what to do, but didn't make it a personal thing with them. He didn't complain about his mistreatment. This is unfair. This is terrible. I can't believe you treat me this way. I'm an innocent man. I've done nothing. He never makes an obvious overt defense of himself amazing that he had that sort of spirit and mindset he didn't curse the enemies that were mistreating him he didn't plot or threaten revenge on them you know if i make it alive you guys are in trouble or even like jesus on the cross it's the same attitude disobedient attitude father forgive them i mean that that's unbelievable that he was able to maintain this kind of attitude he didn't allow them to intimidate him but he also didn't, didn't allow them to corrupt him and his witness either because it's, like, if his final words were, I'm going to get you in the next life, or Satan, you know, you're going to burn in hell. Like, that's not going to sound as good as his final words being, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Like, you know, that's different. One's an obedient attitude, and one's probably this Stephen's attitude, you know, if we're honest, okay? There's a difference there. I'm trying to get there, but the only thing I have in common with Stephen is the name, okay? The rest I'm trying to, get, I'm trying to work on, guys, okay? But here's the difference between sometimes we look at the first thing and the third thing too closely together sometimes the proclamation of truth is way easier maybe even a little bit of fun because i can point my finger at somebody to tell them that they're wrong that's kind of fun sometimes if i'm honest right i get kind of a rush like this moral superiority that i'm trying to correct someone or i'm just trying to help them along well like you are beat them dead oh, i'm just trying to do what's best for them they need to be beaten down like whoa right sometimes the proclamation of truth is fun but the obedient attitude is harder to pull off, right? Sometimes, even with a good attitude, it's hard because, like Stephen, we don't always get the reception that we hoped we did. People don't listen. They want to argue. They want to ostracize you. They want to make fun of your faith. They want to call you all sorts of names, put you in all sorts of categories, and just demean you as a person because of your core belief about who Jesus is. And so we don't always get what we are looking for, and that can make this obedient attitude kind of wear down. But an obedient attitude, uh, we'll look at for a second why it's not always easy. Keeping, keeping a soft heart in the pressure is not always easy. Um, not making things nasty, not always easy. Giving the benefit of the doubt even to the enemy that's against us, not always easy. Looking for the good in that person <laughs> is not always easy. Hoping for the best for them not always easy. Forgiving their lies and deception as Stephen did, as Jesus did, is not always easy. Letting God be your defense in those situations is not easy, but it's a marker of a martyr, this obedient attitude. It seems nearly impossible to pull that off, and it is unless we look at the fourth marker. These two are connected, and it's spirit empowerment. The fourth marker of a martyr, the way that all of this can happen is through spirit empowerment. So just before Stephen speaks, we'll go back to last week where we looked at in Acts 6.15. So before Stephen gives his speech, here's what happens. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. He's literally glowing with the glory of God here on trial for his life. Then he gives a speech we've looked at a little bit today. And then afterward, here's what happens. The last thing that we'll read, maybe, I don't want to lie. Yeah, well, close. Anyway, Acts 7:54. the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But here, catch this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. When it comes down to it, how was Stephen able to proclaim truth in the midst of lies? How was he able to remember and live out God's faithfulness in the midst of the worst of circumstances? How was Stephen able to maintain an obedient attitude against an angry, bloodthirsty mob? He was able to do that because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the only answer. That's the only way. A t- Famous 20th century uh, preacher, Leonard Ravenhill, maybe you've heard of him, he said this about Stephen. Everyone recognizes that Stephen was spirit-filled when he was performing wonders, yet he was just as spirit-filled when he was being stoned to death. So the key to Stephen's life, or the key to Stephen's death is in his life. Stephen lived a spirit-filled life so he could live he could die spirit-filled death that's how Stephen was able to do this and as i mentioned a second ago it seems impossible to do this and it is unless we have this fourth marker you cannot stand in this current culture with these other markers without the fourth one i cannot stand in this culture on my own power knowledge wisdom ability strength it's not going to happen spirit empowerment is the only way to stand in our culture and jesus knew this because that's the theme of the entire book of acts is spirit empowerment i feel like i've and last week sounds a lot like the end of today and i've said this a lot throughout but that's because that's the theme of acts is spirit empowerment the key verse in this entire book we looked at a long time ago let's look at it really quick as we close acts 1 8 the final recorded words of jesus christ to his disciples acts 1 verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus knew if you're going to make it, you have to be spirit-empowered. If you're going to stand in whatever day and time you live in, you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit propelling you forward. If you're going to fulfill my mission and make a difference in the world, you have to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. It was true for uh, everyone mentioned in the Old Testament. It's true for Stephen. It's true for us. And you might say, wait, 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 wait. We're talking about markers of a martyr. The odds of any of us in the room actually being killed for our faith is low, if if not zero. I would say you're probably right. Like there, there's a chance things go south really quickly, and you know, maybe at the end of my life we start seeing some of that here. It's possible. We'll talk next week about how it's pretty much everywhere but here right now, so hang on. Eventually, it'll get to our shores. But you might say, okay, I don't know if I can a- if apply any of this because I'm not a martyr, and I'm not going to probably be a martyr, and I would say, wrong. Let's go to the Greek, right, in which the New Testament was written. In the Greek, the word, key word is witness, in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. The Greek word there is this word martus. Does that look familiar to anybody? So we get our word martyr. Let me read Acts 1.8 again in light, of that, in light of the Greek here. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my martyrs. Now, you may not be a martyr ever in the way in which Stephen was. You may, but you may not. But every follower of jesus is called to be a witness which in greek is where we get the word martyr it's where it comes from and so even if we don't give our life in the way that Stephen did, the first step to following jesus in the first place is to die to ourselves so the first step to follow him is to be a martyr to my way my will my preferences my thoughts my philosophy i'm giving it over to him so in essence if you're following jesus you already become a martyr to yourself and you've then called you're called to be a witness which is what we've talked about today we proclaim truth We remember god's faithfulness we have this obedient attitude even in the midst of the trials that we might face and we can do this not on our own power but as we rely upon the power of the holy spirit spirit empowerment is the only way that we can pull any of this off i can't do it you can't do it but he can as we saw with Stephen. And so these are the markers of a martyr that we've looked at today, and I hope that in some small way, I have some of these markers in me. I I hope in some growing degree, you have these markers in you, that they're growing and they're developing and they're flourishing. Even if your life's never on the line like Stephen's was or the prophet's was or Jesus was, that we would still lay down our lives in service for him, that we would exhibit these markers of a martyr. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story of Stephen, a man full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of the power of the Holy Spirit within him, who was able to withstand this crazy attack against him, these bogus charges and false witnesses and the pressure that was on him. And yet he remained faithful to do the work that you'd called him to do my prayer is that we would also do our best through your spirit to live out these same markers you want us to live in your truth and also proclaim it may we remain strong and faithful to live in your truth and to live out your truth and to proclaim it to anyone and everyone that we see on a regular basis and god may you continue to encourage us of your faithfulness May you remind us as we read your word that you are faithful, that you were faithful, that you will be faithful. May we look at our own lives and remember and not not forget your faithfulness, but remember how you've been so good to us and that will never change because you're faithful. May we look at our family and friends and neighbors and our church family here and see God's been faithful to them and that same God I believe will be faithful to me. May we always remember your faithfulness. And God, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances and the opposition that may come against us may we maintain this obedient attitude god check my heart in these moments that i face when the pressure's on when the opposition comes in may i check my heart may you do what you want to do in me and through me keep me where you want me to be keep me even keeled keep my spirit in check guard my words and my thoughts and my attitudes to remain obedient to what you have called me to do And God, help us to be filled with your spirit, empowered by your spirit, or else we can't do any of the above. I can try, I can flail, but I will fail in the end. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit is any of this possible. So help us to be sensitive, open, and receptive to the filling of the Holy Spirit, to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we can be used powerfully through and by the Holy Spirit. God, we want to be your people set apart for your work. Help us to have these markers as a part of our lives as well. And as we do that, you do have a plan and a purpose for each of us that you will fulfill in your own good time and your own good way. And I thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.